Ba, 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 da, da, da. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case. Did you hear that? Of course you did. Oh my God, there's no way you could miss that. We have finally been able to lock our previous music away for good in a dark place, never to be heard from again. We hope you appreciate the change as much as we do. It was a long time coming. Why now? Well, as mentioned in our last episode, we no longer co-release Fast Talk through the Vela News channel. We are exclusively publishing through the Fast Talk channel. So tell all your friends, tell all your teammates, your riding buddies, your coaches to find us right here. And tell them, as a bonus, we've introduced new music. Finally. Today, I'm at home in Niwot, Colorado, recording podcasts in between bouts of coloring and dancing with my four-year-old daughter, Coach Trevor Connor, he's hunkered down in his apartment in Boulder, likely reading the latest research on PGC-1 Alpha. Our producer, Jana Martin, she's hunkered down in an undisclosed location with all her podcast apps churning away, her editing station humming with productivity. Such is life now, and we're working hard to bring you great content despite the challenging circumstances. We debated whether to run an episode today on dealing with the ramifications of the global COVID-19 pandemic. We decided to push it back. Stay tuned next week for recommendations on adjusting your training and bolstering the mental skills to cope with anxiety, defeat, and uncertainty, which applies both to racing generally and to life right now. Today, instead, in episode 104, we wanted to give you something you've come to love about Fast Talk discussion on the science of training and especially answering your training questions. Perhaps we all need to get back to a sense of normalcy for just a short while. In this episode, we take on three questions and cover details about respiratory exchange rates in relation to VO2 max testing. We also discuss how to most effectively use your bike commute for training purposes. And finally, we address the always important always challenging question of how to balance life with training. Kick your feet up safely away from anyone now. Re-listen to that wonderful new intro music to get you excited. Let's make you fast. Let's jump into it. Our first question is from Google Voice from Doug Russell in Rochester, New York, and his question pertains to respiratory exchange rate. Let's listen to it now. Doug Rusho, Rochester, New York. I was wondering if you could shed some light on respiratory exchange ratio and data derived from a VO2max lab test, uh, specifically time spent above one RER and also RER post-test and how I can use uh, that data to optimize my training. Uh, if you need specific numbers, my VO2max was 55 milliliters per kilogram. Time above one RER was three and a half minutes. And RER post-test was 1.67. Thanks. I had a lot of fun with this one when we got this question. So it's going on 10 years now. Back when I was at CSU, I was the head TA for Exercise Physiology 403, which was the sports science, teach everybody about VO2max testing and, and resting metabolic rate and all that sort of stuff. So I had to put together the TA manual, which I dug out. I actually found it. Wow. And dusty, dusty was, old thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> my biggest conclusion from rereading my TA manual is, boy, I sucked at PowerPoint. 
<laughs> it was really bad. And I was giving them those PowerPoints to be able to use for their students. So any of those old 403 students who are listening to this, I'm sorry. Mm. <laughs> that was my fault. <laughs> it's never too late to apologize. But no, it, it was fun to go back through this stuff. So I'm actually going to have my fun geek out a little bit here and just explain some of these concepts because you will hear them if you do a vo2 max test you are going to hear these things and a lot of people don't understand what they mean or you're going to get that vo2 max test and uh, whoever's giving it to you is going to go oh you had an rer of x and you're going to go cool what is that right mean? they they've tested so many people it's second nature to just right. rattle off those acronyms without ex explanation but yeah let's start with rer what what is that so when you do a VO2 max test, they put a giant mask on you, which, as you know, isn't generally fairly uncomfortable, but the newer technology is getting a lot better. They're making it at least a little better to, to handle. You look like a jet fighter pilot, really. Yeah, you do, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And basically, all what it is doing is measuring how much oxygen you are taking in and how much CO2 you are exhaling. Now, people will very quickly say it's measuring how much oxygen you are consuming. No, it actually calculates. When you talk about how much oxygen you're consuming, you're talking about not how much you're breathing in, but how much you're actually using. So to measure the consumption, it actually measures first how much oxygen you inhale and then how much oxygen you exhale, and the difference is, should be what you're, what you're actually consuming. RER is just the amount of carbon dioxide you exhale, divided by the amount of oxygen you inhale. So if you exhale more carbon dioxide than oxygen, you will have an RER below one. Mm -hmm. If you are exhaling the same amount as you inhale, you'll have an RER of, of one. Right. Now, you will sometimes hear people talk about RER. You will sometimes hear people talk about RQ, or respiratory quotient. So I'm going to simplify this. When I'm talking about Carbon dioxide exhale, the, the short form is VCO2. And when you're talking about oxygen can, uh, taken in, you're talking about VO2. So they are both a measure of the ratio, but they are a measure of the ratio at different locations. Mm. So RQ is at the cellular level. It's how much carbon dioxide a cell is putting out versus how much oxygen is taken in. So at the cellular level, it actually is consumption. Mm-hmm. RER is at the the, the face, face level, level. <laughs> basically. Yeah, the mask. So it's at the mask. what you're seeing in the mask. We can't measure at the cellular level, so RER is an approximation of RQ. It's the best we can do. And here's what's really important. Here's why I was giving you all that science. They are only equal in a steady state. Mm. So when you are sitting there below threshold holding a, a steady wattage, RER and RQ are essentially the same thing. Mm -hmm. Once you go over threshold, so there's two scenarios where you're not in a steady state. One is right when you start exercise. Mm -hmm. Your body often hasn't obtained a steady state, so you're going to get a bit of an R, weird RER. The other place is when you go over threshold, then you're no longer in a steady state, and that's going to impact RER, and I'll get to that in a minute. So why do we want to know about RER? Right, next question, RQ, next big question. Which is a really important thing. This allows you to determine how much 
fat you're using for fuel versus carbohydrates for fuel. Right. Now, they will talk about the non-protein respiratory quotient. Yes, we burn a little bit of protein for fuel, but it's, it's pretty negligible. And that's basically calculated out. So when you're talking about RER, when you're talking about RQ, it's usually short form for non-protein mm-hmm, mm-hmm. version. Uh, we're just really going to focus on just fats and, and carbohydrates. You start burning more protein as you exercise longer, but early in exercise, certainly when you're doing a VO2 max test, it's accounting for, for 5% or less of your fuel. fuel. Like I said, it's relatively negligible. But here's, so when we're just talking about fats and carbohydrates, when you burn fat, you, it requires more oxygen mm. to, completely, to completely oxidize it. So typical fat molecule, when you completely oxidize it, will produce about 16 molecules of CO2, but require... 23 molecules of O2. Mm -hmm. So if you do the quotient on that, that's an RER of 0.0 or Mm 0.7. Carbohydrates, it's a one-to-one. So typical molecule, uh, you know, glucose molecule, it's going to produce six uh, molecules of carbon dioxide and require six molecules of oxygen or O2. So that would give you an RER of one. So this is why people say fat is a more efficient fuel? I made this mistake before. No, that's not actually why why fat is... This doesn't really... When we're talking about efficiency, this Mm -hmm. doesn't really impact uh, efficiency. As a matter of fact, if you looked at it purely this way, since it requires more... If you're trying to say something about efficiency, I made this mistake a long time ago, you go, oh, well, it requires more oxygen to oxidize that, that fat, therefore it's actually less efficient. Mm. But what you have to, to figure out that efficiency, you have to look at energy production relative to oxygen consumption. Right. And that's not what RER is about. Gotcha. If you are doing a VO2max test and your RER is 0.7, you know you are relying 100% on fat. Mm. If your RER is 0.85, you are fi- you relying 50-50. Mm-hmm. So it's half of your energy is coming from fat, half is coming from carbohydrate. At one, you are entirely relying on carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. And you can search this on the web. You can find all sorts of tables that will show you at, at every single RER what your ratio of fat to carbohydrate is. And that's yeah. one of the things if you do a VO2 max test that you will get if they're doing a, if it's a good lab, they'll provide you with a graph that will show you your, how much fat you re, how much you're relying on fat versus how much you're relying on carbohydrate and where that crossover point is where you were 50-50. Yeah. And to be clear, this is based on some math, but it's backed up by a lot of research, correct? Yes. Yep. This, this is all calculations. Again, what we're trying to get at is that RQ, and we actually can't measure that. Mm-hmm. So all this is calculations based on some pretty good science. So this is, this is quite reliable. Yeah. Now, here's, let's get to the, the question that was asked. He went over a one. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Because if you're relying 100% on carbohydrates, your RER is, is one. Right. You technically shouldn't be able to go over one. And when you're talking about RQ, 
Hundred percent accurate. Yeah. Your your RQ just can't go over one. But right. we're talking about RER. Mm-hmm. Other things affect the amount of carbon amount of carbon dioxide that you exhale, and one of the biggest ones is buffering acid. Mm-hmm. We talked about that on a previous episode, but one of the ways your body buffers acid as it's produced at higher intensities is with bicarbonate. And the end product of bicarbonate, or the the bonding of bicarbonate to uh, to the hydrogen ions, is carbon dioxide. Right. And your body has to get rid of that. So when your RER goes over one, that is an indicator that you're above threshold, you're producing a lot of acid, and your body's trying to buffer it. Mm-hmm. it you are considered to be right around VO2 max when your RER is around 1.15. I've seen 1.1, I've seen 1.15. When I was teaching this lab, we used 1.15. Mm-hmm. So if somebody, if you were conducting a VO2 max test and somebody finished, and let's say they were only at 1 or 1.02, you can actually say, I don't think you did a proper VO2 max test. Mm. I don't think you reached VO2 max. Is there, is, are, are, are the testers and or test E test subjects seeing this in real time? This you can. You can yeah. now. Uh, some testers don't like the the person being tested to see the screen, mm-hmm. particularly if they know what they're reading, because sometimes people will stop mm-hmm. testing because mm-hmm. they see the numbers they want to see. Sure. Uh, other testers are fine. You can you can look at all this. Yeah. I used to like when I did a VO two max test. I used to like to look at it. I've stopped for exactly that reason. As soon as I see one point one, I go, okay, I'm done. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which it's no. You should go until you're dead. Yeah. Yeah. That depends on the tester, but certainly you can see in real time where your, your RER is. So this Doug was over one for a while and hit 1.67. Yeah, that's pretty high. Which is really high. And this is where you can start to see some of the attributes of the cyclist. So when you have a pure time trialer like me, who doesn't have a huge anaerobic capacity... I'll get up to that 1.15, maybe 1.2, but I, I die pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. I don't get very high. If you got in a, a good sprinter with a huge anaerobic capacity and tested them, they can hit quite high RERs because this is showing their ability to continue working once they're above threshold, once they're out of a, out of a steady state. Perhaps a silly question: Can the any food or drink that you consume during the test mess up the results that you see? Yes. So your body preferentially burns carbohydrates. So if you eat right before a VO2 max test and eat a bunch of carbohydrates, your body's going to rely on that. I've seen that where I've told people to to fast before they do the VO2 max test, they forget to do that. Mm-hmm. They come in, we hook the mass up to them, and they're already at an RER of one. <laughs> yeah, it skews the data considerably, I would, I would think. You do find once you get them exercising, often that will come down, and they'll get to, to something a little more normal. But I always preferred, when I was conducting a VO2 max test, basically tell people, I want you for... for five, six, seven hours. You know, I like to do the VO2 access in the morning and basically say, come in fasted mm-hmm. and let's test you. 
Well, that was great explanation on RER. What about the quote number that people get when they when they're done with their VO2 max test? This, for for instance, Doug gets fifty five millimeters per per kilogram. This is yeah. This is the number everybody wants to see. What is my VO2 max? Yeah. So first, when you do a VO2 max test, you will get two numbers for your VO2 max. Uh, one is just the milliliters per minute. Uh, the other one is that we'll add that per kilogram. Mm -hmm. The per kilogram is important because your weight is a factor here. Mm -hmm. And while we always talk about how to improve your VO2 max, one of the simplest ways to improve your VO2 max is drop your weight. <laughs> sure. Which is why climbers tend to have very high VO2 max because your really good climbers tend to be thin, little people. Yeah, right. Yeah, that is the simplest way to bring that VO2 max down. So the number that most of us think about is the width the kilogram. Right. When you're talking about, let's say, people like us, middle-aged, sedentary individual. What the hell? I'm not middle-aged. Like, I'm like a third-aged. Chris? <laughs> Chris is in denial about his middle age. So an average middle-aged, sedentary individual Males, you're going to be around 35. Females, you're going to be around 30. For young sedentary individuals like Chris, hmm. you might see around for males 45, for females 38. And by the way, I looked for these numbers last night, and you will find, if you do a search on charts of what's typical, you're going to find 50 different variants. What I'm reading to you is actually out of McArdle, which is one of the big... If you take exercise physiology in college, that's likely, you know, for a lot of people, the textbook you're going to use. That one are powers. Yeah, yeah. So I just figured let's go with a standard. When you are talking about high level, like when we're talking about pros, Tour de France athletes, you're going to see them up in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah, this is the number of people like to throw around, like, Greg LeMond's was 93. and It wasn't 93. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I get it. Uh, people use this number to sort of brag yes. about w w their capabilities or something like that. And, and yeah, you'll hear of uh, Norwegian cross-country skiers or something like that. Oh, my God, this junior, his VO2 max is 97. Um, and it's uh, people are using it implying that it's, well, he's going to be the world champion for the next decade because of that number, but it's not that simple. Well, there was a bias placed on VO2 max because that was one of the things that they really – very early on figured out in the labs how to test and mm -hmm. all of a sudden we had all this great scientific data and you could measure somebody's vo2 max so that was that was a way of comparing people measuring sure. them so they went oh you need this vo2 max it has to be this level etc since then a fair amount of research has come out showing that vo2 max isn't a, a great predictor of performance right and I always think of, I, I didn't get his permission, so I won't give his name, but there was a guy at our center who was a, a Canadian national champion, won some big races, and we typically measured his VO2 max in the high 40s, low 50s. Mm -hmm. He wasn't even average. Yeah. But he was probably extraordinarily efficient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there, you can't, this number in isolation doesn't mean a whole lot. Right. And one a study I absolutely love is one where they looked at pro cyclists over a four-year period to, to see how they improved and showed that they tended to either improve on the VO2 max side 
or are they improved on the efficiency side? But not both. But never both. And so this is my opinion, but just based on what I have read, when you see an improvement in, in both, do some dope testing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah, uh, really high level. You will typically, like I said, see in the 80s. The highest numbers measured are, are generally in cross-country skiers because they use their arms, mm -hmm. which means they're using more muscle tissue, yeah. more oxygen consumption, so they're going to be a little higher than cyclists who don't only use their legs right? or mostly only use their legs. One other question. Garmin's, some other head unit devices, will, will now have this capability of telling you your VO2 max after a particular ride or workout or whatever. How, how poor is that an indication of your VO2 max? Well, I love your bias. Not how good is that, how <laughs> poor is that? Well, just thinking through all of the things we just talked about right now, yeah, I, maybe it is a bias, but it seems like it couldn't possibly be all that accurate. Now, in their defense, so I have a Garmin that tells me that. Mm-hmm. You and I have recently, or over the last couple of years, done some articles, some testing at the lab where I've had to get my VO2 max tested. Sure. And I've actually been somewhat impressed. I mean, it's not spot on. Sure. But good, it's, it's a good guess. Closer <laughs> than, yeah, it's a decent guess. Yeah. Okay. So I, I will give them some credit there. I have no idea how they're calculating it. You watch the literature. There's studies every couple months, maybe even more frequently, that have the ways of approximating your VO2 max without having to go into a lab and put a mask on. And so my guess is they, they've read that research. They found some formulas that seem to be fairly good, and that's what they built into the computer. But I haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. I can only talk to my own experience, which was when we did a few tests, I looked at it on the Garmin and went, that actually surprises me. Wow. All right. Well, I will rephrase my question the next time I ask it. <laughs> Some of the other things that it tells me at the end of my ride? Yeah, sure. Those are a little bit uh, off. My favorite one was I did a ride, realized I forgot something, came home, stopped my garment so i'd ridden five minutes it told you you needed to recover for how for many like, days like 34 hours <laughs> yeah. from yeah. my five minute easy ride yeah, so there you go some of the things are a little questionable but i would love to actually talk to somebody at garmin about a lot of these metrics and how they're doing it but at least in terms of that vo2 max again it's not going to be what you're going to get in the lab but as a guide mm -hmm. i was surprised our next questions come from David Slowinski, who reached out to Trevor via Training Peaks. First question. I typically commute to work every day of the week, 30K return trip, which takes anywhere from 35 to 55 minutes. David lo looks like he lives up in Calgary, where it's sometimes, quote, crazy snowy and other times super dry. He continues, in addition to this, I'm trying to do six to eight hours a week of structured trainer workouts. This puts me at approximately 14 to 18 hours a week. Should I be throttling back the commutes to focus on more specific trainer workouts, or is it typically okay to do both? Trevor, what do you think here? First of all, as a Canadian, kudos for commuting <laughs> in Calgary, <laughs> particularly if you're doing that in the winter. Yep, that takes a strong man to do that. that is, that's impressive. I, I tip my hat to you. I'm actually going to throw this one back at you, Chris, since a few days ago you spent the entire day working in your bike tights at your desk. 
don't tell people that. Yeah, well, we're without a, a shower. Every time, time is riding time. That was your nine-hour ride. I guess so. Uh, no, um, well, the difference between David and I is that I spend no time on a, a trainer. So, but in terms of how to incorporate commuting into your uh, training week, my practice is um, to just be thoughtful about it, like every other ride that you do and you can't use your commutes whether they're 35 minutes or 55 minutes or if you extend them that day to just blaze blaze through them you know as fast as you can or as as other people have written to us should I be sprinting out of every stop sign or every red light to to get my sprinting practice in no you should definitely not be doing that on every commute what I do is that for the most part, I'm using the commutes to gain some volume, but do it very slowly. Occasionally, I will use a commute to do an actual workout on. Um, and so you you have to look at the big picture, as we always uh, emphasize, and incorporate these commutes into your week or into your training, just like you would the other rides. Of course, there's two of them a day, so you also have to be particularly careful about that. Uh, often, I, I feel better doing harder stuff in the mornings, so I'll try to do my, if I'm going to turn my commute into a workout, I'll do that in the morning, and then you just have to be sure to go very easy on the way home. So it, it takes some thought, it takes some planning, it takes some considerations about how much weight you might be carrying on your bike, um, all sorts of things, but it can certainly be done. And I literally don't ride a trainer and I commute many times a week and I will go out on the weekends for some extra volume and, and that sort of thing. But you can do a lot with the commuting if you do it right. I think length is also a really important factor. Sure. If you have a short commute, a 10-minute commute, it's just... You don't sprint out of every light again, mm -hmm. but it's just not going to really impact you one way or the other. When I was in school, I had a 10-minute commute. I time-trialed it every morning because I was always late for class. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Didn't really affect me too much either way. If I was smart enough to get up and take my time to get to class, I would have always ridden it slow, which is what yeah. I do now. Uh, when you have a longer commute, so in this case, looks like David has a 35 to 55 minute commute. I do think you can have some benefits to that. I, I think Chris was spot on of just keep it slow, keep it controlled. Don't sprint out of lights and you can get some gains. The commute that I don't like is that 25-ish minute commute. It's long enough that it is going to impact your recovery but not long enough to really have a lot of training gains. Yeah. So that's, if I had a 25-minute commute and I, I was stuck biking it every day, I would probably take the approach of, I'm different from Chris, I prefer the doing the work in the, the afternoon. I would probably do a really slow get to work in the morning and then take the real long way home in the, the evening and, and make it longer. Yeah. I think as a general rule, and this is a pretty rough estimate, but if you're debating whether to put bib shorts on in the morning, then your commute is probably short enough that it's not that beneficial. So if you put on the bib shorts, if you get dressed in your cycling clothing and you can make it into a legitimate ride, then 
there's ways you can make it a constructive ride and workout. And the other thing to do here, I don't know what the public transportation system is like in Calgary or elsewhere where you're listening, but you could consider taking the bus in with your bike on it and then riding home um, to cut down on some of the the junk miles, for lack of a better term, or vice versa. Ride in, take the bus home, and sort of flip it around where you're alternating between those two modes of transportation. So exactly. get creative. And if you do feel you need to put the bib shorts on in the morning, I'm looking at you here, Chris. Take them off when you get to work. Is that what you're going to say? Bring clothes to work. <laughs> hey, I forgot them one day. We were in a different office. We now have a shower. We're, we're, we're moving up in the world. You'll never see me wear my bib shorts at my desk again. Well, I'm going to wait for that to happen. <laughs> you know it's going to happen. <laughs> and I'm going to remind you of this. Please do. I, I don't want to be the guy that sits in his chamois all day. And Jenna doesn't want that either. Jenna's our producer. She's giving me the stink eye over here. Literally the stink eye. So the second part of David's question. Good save. <laughs> the second part of David's question is around balance. He writes, I have two weddings and two bachelor parties between now and Dirty Kanza, which is four weekends I can't get quality training in. Are there opportunities around these weekends I should be, quote, burying myself with more workload during the weekdays to make up for the lost opportunity? Or what is a beneficial strategy in your experience in managing lost weekends? So there, this is actually a more complex answer than you would think. And there's a lot of variations here. And, and Chris, I know you have a lot to, to add to this. What I'm going to start with, though, is a weekend off the bike is not going to kill you. Do not get into that mindset. Now, if you take... 10 days off the bike, I've had a few athletes do this, in the middle of your season, and you get back a week or two before a target race, yeah, that's going to affect your race. So avoid that. But a weekend, no. No, you can, even if you just train normally, and you are stuck taking a weekend off, it's not like all of a sudden your fitness has disappeared. Is there a general rule of thumb here about how long it takes for you to start detraining? Boy, so we're again going to go back to McArdle. Mm-hmm. But I haven't read that textbook in a long time, but I was enjoying going through that the <laughs> other night. There is a chart in there that shows that you, your body does not start detraining until about four days mm-hmm. after you, you stop exercising. So, yeah, if you've been training normally, you've got a four-day window where you're going to have no impact. As a matter of fact, you might even see an increase in your form because you're resting. You're letting your body adapt. Uh, And it's not like you hit that fifth day and all of a sudden, oh, there's all my fitness gone for the entire year. Right. There's no cliff there. Right. There is a point where it starts to decline quite rapidly. But that's, again, when you're getting into that, I've been off the bike for 10 days. Yeah. Or you've had an injury that's taken you off the bike for a while. Then that's a whole different conversation. Mm -hmm. But we're talking about weekends right now. So a couple things to consider or remember here. We've talked about stress is stress. Maybe flip that around and say recovery is recovery or not all recovery (laughs) is recovery. More the, remember, time off the bike isn't necessarily recovery. Mm -hmm. You might say, oh, I'm going to a bachelor party. I'm going to be off the bike, so let's destroy myself and then let my body recover. But then I'm going to get on a plane, I'm going to go party, I'm going to stay up all night, I'm going to drink. 
don't think you're coming back from that recovered. Yeah. Your body doesn't realize the difference between training stress and other types of stress in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Right. You know, that's the, I got to criticize once for using that stress as stress because there is an important distinction. Yes. Stress on the bike, you're going to adapt from. Right. Work stress. No, you're not going to adapt from. Your hair turns gray and you Right. Get heart palpitations. But that's another story. But when it comes to keeping yourself in balance and that balance between stress and recovery, stress is stress. And I have to have this talk with athletes a lot where they'll tell me, oh, I had a killer week at work. The kids were sick. I'm sniffling and all this sort of stuff. But it's a pretty easy week on the, on the bike. So I think I'm pretty recovered. And you go, no, you're not recovered at all. Mm-hmm. You're beat up. You're just, yeah. You weren't beat up by the bike. You're beat up by life, right? But you got to adjust your training to account for that. Mm-hmm. You can't separate the two. Absolutely. So this is the same thing. the The first question I would throw back at David is, "What does that weekend look like? Is it partying hard, drinking hard, or is it going to your, I don't know, your your the lake house, the lake relaxing. house, right? Doing relaxing, fishing. yeah, nice." quiet wedding, whatever, and you're going to get a lot of, get a lot of rest, that's going to have an impact. If it's that ladder where it is going to be truly a restful weekend. Yeah. Have do a good hard training week, then go and rest at the wedding. Mm-hmm. If it's the bachelor party, <laughs> no, <laughs> not as likely that that would be a relaxing time, but you never know. So, yeah, just you have to weigh all those things into the equation of how to determine what happens the week leading into it, how many days you might, if if the bachelor party is looking stressful, but you still think, I want to get some big training in, maybe do that in the beginning of the week, give yourself some time to recover, and then go into the weekend uh, not fresh, but you know, with with some days between you and the hard workout, so that you can then drink your brains out and not get right. sick and and overdo it. Especially if you're getting on a plane. Yeah. And you brought up we had that talk. Uh, yeah, pre- ab- absolutely. Um, with uh, Brent Bookwalter in episode ninety three, we talked a lot about balancing life and training, and specifically in a segment we spoke about travel and you don't want to set yourself up for a traveling on a day when you're immunocompromised because you just did a massive week of training and put yourself, uh, make yourself vulnerable in an airport or an airplane um, when you're in that state. So again, taking a, a step back and looking at the bigger picture of where training and life uh, come together is really important here. We, we spoke about uh, staying healthy generally also in episode 31. So both of those episodes are great resources here for more information on how to do this the right way. Now, another thing is you can look for ways to get a little training over that weekend, especially if you're at that nice, relaxing wedding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you can bring your bike. If you can, sneak out, go for a ride. Uh, you can potentially hop on a gym bike and just spin the legs a little bit. I often use things like that to say, I, I, you know, as I've said before, I lift weights all year round. I might look at, you know, see if the hotel I'm at has a weight room and maybe go lift over that weekend. How, uh, how much, um, does dancing do for cardiovascular health? 
Can you get like really into it? Do the tango a lot, and that could be a workout. The way I dance, <laughs> you put your back whatsoever. out. <laughs> You'd put your back the out. The way some people dance, yeah, actually, I mean, it's it's can just be good. Seriously, I mean, it, it can be some good cross training. Yeah, we've talked about the fact that cycling is a very specific movement where you're kind of locked in. It's good to have those opportunities to use your legs in different ways, work other muscles. And quite frankly, dancing accomplishes that. Yeah. I would also think here that we talk a lot about the mental component here. If you can enjoy, just enjoy yourself and, and, and you have had some big weeks or, or, and you do it right, just letting go of that. And like you started this answer with taking a weekend off maybe from thinking about racing and just let your mind relax and enjoy the wedding. That might be, the best way to do it really valuable so my bachelor party yeah was in boston in a snowstorm uh-huh and they got a pink five-year-old's bicycle with training wheels and made me ride around on that thing in a skin suit all over <laughs> boston so i got great training at my bachelor party <laughs> excellent that was another episode of fast talk as always, we love your feedback and your questions. Keep them coming. Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or call 719-800-2112 and leave us a voicemail. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Please pull out your phone right now. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes as that helps others find Fast Talk. And of course, follow us on social media. We're at Real Fast Labs. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.